So setting this text, our text from Matthew chapter 7, in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount is a very important thing to do. Without doing that, you'll look at this text as something which is really, you'll think, is impossible to square with your own experience. So what is that broader context? Well, the Sermon on the Mount where the text occurs, is is a demanding call to kingdom discipleship, right? It's a call where that kingdom and its righteousness is to be sought first above all things. And if we do that, if we do that, God will supply our need. That's the general thrust of a passage like this. So it's this reality that should frame our approach to a short passage on prayer like this. If we just lift this passage on prayer out, we're going to have trouble making any sense of it at all. And as I said, we'll have trouble squaring it with our actual experience. Now, in addition, in the Sermon on the Mount, closer to this text, Jesus has already taught the Lord's Prayer. And he's taught that as a sort of pattern and a sort of guide for all Christian prayer. In fact, now we're looking at Matthew's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel, this text that I just read, it comes immediately after Jesus gives the disciples the Lord's Prayer. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, then he gives a short little parable on persistence about the friend at midnight. And then he does this ask, seek, knock. I'll come back to the significance of, of, of this order in, in a few moments. but So that's sort of a broad frame. And with that, we'll turn to the text, Matthew 7, um, beginning at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. It's often been pointed out that these verbs here are continuous present tense verbs. So it's keep asking, you'll receive Keep seeking, you'll find. Keep knocking and it'll be open to you. And notice in the text, Jesus is absolutely, um, he, he, he makes no exceptions. He's absolute in the scope of this. As verse 8 indicates, everyone, everyone, not just an elite group of spiritual people or pious people, but everyone, everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So it's sweeping. There are no qualifications. So here, a couple of uh, caveats are in order. I'm going to make two sub-points here. The first one is this. The framework, which I've already talked about. The grid for this exhortation is the Lord's Prayer. That's important not to lose sight of that. So ask and seek and knock, they're they're virtually synonyms. There's no real fine distinction between them. And what we are to seek, we know from the sermon. What are we to seek? We are to seek God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the Lord's Prayer is a kingdom prayer. So we know this. We know that God will... Always vindicate his glory. Right? He will bring forth his indestructible kingdom. He will always supply what you need. 
You can't always get what you want, but God will supply your daily bread. He will always answer prayers for the forgiveness of sins and for deliverance from evil. And so if we were to just take the verses of our text isolated from this frame of the Lord's Prayer, not only would you get some nonsense, right? You get a lot lot of name it, claim it, faith healing type of ministries rest on taking verses like this and taking them out of the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. So you, you, that would, that's one pathology. And the other is just great spiritual disillusionment. Because there's, there's, in fact, no one whose experience is that they get everything they ask and seek and knock for. But if you're asking, and if you're seeking, and if you're knocking about the content of the Lord's Prayer, then you will not be disappointed. That's why Jesus is so sweepingly unqualified here in his promises. And so it's another reminder that we need prayer, desperately need prayer, that's driven, that's shaped by the priorities of our Lord's prayer. Hallowing the name of God in the earth. The coming of his kingdom. The doing of his will. Then our needs and our salvation. That's the basic order. So there's no carte blanche here to, to view God sort of as an errand boy. So the second sort of caveat that I want to make at this point is um, Jesus is calling us here to a kind of expectant boldness. I mean, the text is meant to instill confidence, not crazy overconfidence, but real confidence in praying for the kingdom. Calvin has this statement where he says, nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than the confidence that our Father hears us. We know that we have, now that Christ has been sacrificed and raised and ascended and is our priest, that we have boldness to enter the holy place. So we're to draw near. We're to have full assurance and confidence that when we ask according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, we will receive. Our difficulties in prayer are that we want lots of things that are not according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Or that we're not promised. And it's okay. You can ask God for stuff that's not explicitly promised. There's nothing wrong with asking God for stuff. The the thing is, he, he has made no promise about it. We have no claim on him about it. The thrust and the driving axis of prayer is to be the things he's promised. And those things are the hallowing of his name, the bringing of his kingdom, the forgiveness of your sins, the the deliverance uh, of the church from evil, and the providing of your daily bread. And so this is a passage that reminds us that in addition to being confident, we need the right order in prayer. As, as an aside, one of, the, one of the greatest treatises on prayer ever written was written by John Calvin. It's in book three of his, his, his great institutes. And I commend it to you highly. It's, it's very moving. It's a convicting pastoral piece of writing. It is still to this day probably the best thing I've ever read on prayer. And, and Calvin says there that all of the treasures 
You know how Colossians says that the tre- all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. So all the treasures of God and the gospel are laid up in Christ. But Calvin says it remains for us through arduent, arduous and persistent praying to dig out those treasures. The treasures that we have in Christ are hidden. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden with Christ and God. And by praying... We dig those treasures out. We appropriate the riches that are ours in Christ. And there is a sense in which there's no way to appropriate them apart from this sacred labor of prayer. Words, Calvin says in this treatise, words fail to express how important prayer is. And so, two things are relevant here. One is, if we want to see God do great things, we need to pray more. But also, we need to pray prayers that are shaped by the Lord's Prayer, by that set of priorities. And so this brings me to this short little parable of sorts that Jesus tells to further illustrate the point and and to encourage us to put courage in our hearts to pray. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? All right, of course, no, you know, no sane human parent would do this. Um, he says, if, if we human parents who are evil, and by that Jesus means fallen, right? we're, self, we're mere shadows. Even good parents are mere shadows of the graciousness of our Heavenly Father and His goodness. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good Give good gifts to those who ask him. So it's interesting. Jesus has just hit the note of confident persistence. Ask, seek, knock. But there's an important qualifier to that note right here that I think is often missed. Persistence is not called for because God is a grudging, you know, ungenerous Father, who needs to be stirred up or incited or moved by us. There's a lot of evangelical language about prayer that I think sneaks this in. God does not need to be prevailed upon by us. Jesus is able to keep these two things side by side. You be diligent in asking, seeking, and knocking, and God is infinitely more generous than you would be to your own children. Your diligence is not about changing God's mind. The father who gave his son is fully, bountifully, you know, beneficently inclined toward us. He's turned his face toward us wholly. And that's why Paul can say that he who's given us his son, will he not freely with him give us all things? Augustine has this great saying, having already granted us the gift of making us sons, what will he not grant us? You have the greatest thing, the gift of the son. So whatever petitioning the father is about, it's not about getting the father to sort of open up you know, on his, uh, his shriveled heart. So... It's important, I think, to see that 
when Jesus calls us to persistence, it's, it's a means by which God draws us into communion with himself and with his purposes in the earth. And those purposes are outlined in the Lord's Prayer. Now, you, you know where you can see this the best? You can see it in the Old Testament tabernacle, where right outside the curtain of the holy place, there's an altar of incense. And we know that incense is a picture of, of prayer. right? And that incense reappears ascending in the prayers of the saints in the book of Revelation. So that right at the place where atonement is made, and where the, the people of God have a covenant bond with the glory of God descending in his radiant splendor into the tabernacle, their incense floats into that most holy place. When you are praying... You are being drawn into communion by a covenant bond into the glorious life of the Holy Trinity. That's what prayer is essentially about. Prayer changes us. It does not change God. Now, Jacob was said to prevail with God or to wrestle with God, but it was Jacob who walked away wounded. So prayer, then, is rooted in the covenant. It's rooted in Trinitarian communion through the atoning offering of of Christ. It's not detached. It's not like you have salvation, and now you have a duty called prayer. Prayer is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, because atonement and communion with the glorious triune God is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Prayer is incense, priestly incense offered in communion with God. And so in this sense, if we start to see it this way, we see it as a father's way of training his family. Prayer is a way of God training you in a kind of self-emptying. There's, not, there's something very humbling about praying, isn't, it? isn't there? It's a, it's a form of emptying yourself and acknowledging your dependence. And it places us in this posture of open-handed receptivity and trust. And that's a big part of what it's about. So, we're to be persistent, but not because God is ungenerous. And persistence is not repetition. God is not coaxed or manipulated by us repeating ourselves. That's a pagan notion. Jesus has already condemned it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? They, They think they'll be heard for their many words. Jesus condemns repetition in prayer. So whatever asking and seeking and knocking is, it's not magic. It's certainly not a form of chanting open sesame enough times. So, persistence then is mindful. It's mindful that God is our Father. I mean, you wouldn't ask your Father for the same thing 35 times in one day, would you? I mean, that would, that would indicate that you're disordered, right? You, I, mean, I mean, if it was something that your father promised you, you would occasionally remind him as long as the need persisted and the promise was not yet fulfilled. But somehow people think that with God, if I ask him 77 times today, that shows I'm really persistent. No, that just shows you're annoying. That shows you don't understand what meaningless repetition means. Part of the problem is we're 
we're not asking for things God has promised. And, and repetition is a way of trying to compensate for that. When you ask for what God has promised, you realize, I don't have to ask him a lot for this. Because he's promised it. So what does persistence mean? Then it means something like this. It means occasionally, seasonably, across long periods of time, without stopping, reminding God of what he has promised. It means stay, stay at the task. Stay at the task. Keep reminding God of what he's promised. Keep asking what he's promised. It's sort of like where Paul tells Timothy and he's speaking to ministers there, that they should be ready to preach in season and out. But, you know, they, 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 or that they should actually preach the word in season and out. But that doesn't mean you go around preaching all the time. It just means you stay at the task. So that's largely what persistence is about. And, and it can seem like a fine line. I understand that. Um, but there really is a difference between the kind of persistence the Bible's asking for and meaningless repetition. And I hope you can see that. There's a difference between being a person who's persistent in prayer and a person who is meaninglessly repeating themselves. Um, So God doesn't have a kind of counter. Sometimes people say, you know, we have a lot of people praying for this. I'm like, all right, what was that? I, I didn't know the number really mattered, but... If you think the number matters to God, fine. Sometimes I think that's an American democratic instinct. There's something deeply pagan about it, though. That somehow, if we have a lot of people praying, a lot of prayers, that what's, what's presumed? That, again, that God is somehow ungenerous. That he hasn't already given the greatest of gifts. That he needs his arm twisted, and if there's 85 people instead of 8, this kind of calculus is not the kind of calculus, again, I'm happy if more people pray than less, don't get me wrong, I don't want to be misheard, but I don't think there's much theological significance in it, right? All it took was Elijah to shut the heavens. So there's no counter that God has about how many people or how many times that he's waiting for us to cross. He's your father. And he's going to give you the things that he's promised to give you because he's already given you his son. This is a different way of looking at prayer that says, oh, I want to pray to this God. I want to keep, I want to keep reminding him of his, of his promises. And those things that he's going to give you are here called good gifts. right? He's going to give those who seek his kingdom all good things because he is good. And because he's promised good. Of course, because he's wise, he will also not give us anything we ask for. Even human parents don't give their children everything, probably don't give their children most of what they ask for. Remember, this is a father who refused, for the sake of the everlasting kingdom, to take the cup away from his son in Gethsemane. Your salvation depends on a no to a prayer from the Son to the Father. No. So, I I mentioned I'd come back to the way Luke does this in his Gospel. And I think it helps clarify this kingdom form of praying. Uh, Luke ends his version of this. 
And he says this. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father give? He does not say good gifts like Matthew does. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's what Luke says. And so it turns out that all the good things we ask of God can be reduced to this, the gift of the Spirit. He who has given the Son will, to those who ask, seek, and knock, give the gift of the Spirit. Now that should change the way we look at prayer. And especially the notion of persistent asking and persistent seeking and persistent knocking. If we're persistently asking and persistently seeking and persistently knocking, what we're persistently after is living, vibrant, mature, growing communion in the Holy Trinity. For the Father who has given the Son will indeed give the gift of the Spirit, Luke says. Jesus says in Luke's Gospel. So, the Spirit then is in in the words of our closing closing hymn, he's the best of all donations God can give or we implore. Having your sweet consolations, we need ask for nothing more. Finally, and the reason that is true is because the Holy Spirit is the church's Lord and God. The gift of the Spirit is the gift of God. And so, If we're calling upon the Spirit of God to hallow the Father's name, to bring the kingdom, right, to to, to subjugate all to his will on earth, to give us our daily bread, to cleanse us from sin, then our Father is going to hear and he's going to respond to our asking and our seeking and our knocking. Anything outside of this, like, like I said, you're free to ask, but you have no claim or promise to it. More importantly, though, it has the, the, uh, the built-in danger of subverting the proportion and the order of our praying. So in verse, verse 12 here, finally, um, and this is in response to our Father's generosity, And probably more broadly, just trying to summarize the ethic of the kingdom of God, Jesus says this, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's interesting, he ends this short little parable on prayer with with what is known as the golden rule. There was a third century Roman emperor, Severus, who we can trace the idea of calling this the golden rule to him. He was not a Christian. But he was so impressed by this saying of Jesus that he had it engraved in gold and put on his chamber wall. Thus it became known from at least the third century on as the golden rule. And the rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's not unique. It's found in the ancient world a good bit. You can find forms of it in Confucius and in the Stoics and in Greek, various Greek writers, you can find it in some rabbis. But it's often, most of the time, in negative form. It goes like this. What you don't want done to you, don't do to others. That's the libertarian form of the rule. What you don't want done to you, don't do to others. And, and that's certainly true. Um, 
But it's probably even implied by Jesus' words here. Obviously, that's part of the golden rule. But the positive form is, is more demanding. Do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. I mean, think of the goats in Matthew 25. Those who did not visit the imprisoned and the blind and the naked and the hungry. They would be acquitted under the negative form of the rule. Well, I never did anything to anyone that I didn't want done to me. But they're indicted under Jesus' form of the rule. And so, this, this rule summarizes, our Lord says it here, summarizes the law and the prophets. Which means, it's not arbitrary or subjective. Right? You can't decide, I'm okay if people curse me, so I'm going to be able to curse people. Right? The rule summarizes the law and the prophets. The kingdom that they announce. And you know what's beautiful about the golden rule? It's exquisitely simple. It summarizes some 600 plus commands. At least all the commands of the law that pertain to neighbors. And it summarizes all those commands into one always applicable rule. There's a genius in being able to summarize this way. Um, And the beauty of this is that it settles thousands of difficult situations, a whole wide array of human interactions and relations, without having recourse to endless rule-making. Right? I, I think we don't appreciate this in the West, right? that we have this rule and it has so impacted the way even secularists expect to be treated and other people to be treated. It's built into all of our laws, all of our contracts. Right? We, don't, we don't say for every interaction, oh, let, let, me, let me consult my law book. Right? And, okay, you know, neighbor wants to borrow this. and let me. Well, we have this rule, that's it. It keeps things basically simple. And so, this, this rule, though, is exquisitely difficult. I mean, it's very, it calls, think about this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that, that calls for a kind of deep empathy. This is not something that we are instinctively, I don't think, good at. Because it, 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 it requires imaginatively displacing yourself and putting yourself in the shoes of that other person and asking, how would I like to be treated? What do the law and the prophets require of me in this situation? And it's rare to find people who do this consistently. Because we're quick to, to, you know, to sort of belittle the other person or think their situation is ridiculous or not understand their situation. So keeping the rule, should, the simplicity of the rule as a summary of the law should not blind us to the fact that it means never, never being harsh or cruel or impatient, but always being generous and understanding and kind. It means to love your neighbor as yourself, thus fulfilling the whole Mosaic law. And so, notice in this context, what we are asking and seeking and knocking for, in large part, is the power of the Holy Spirit to live by this rule. Again, this is the importance of not taking these prayer verses out of context. We are asking for the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might love others. And there's something very fitting about this because the Holy Spirit 
is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. Paul tells us that when God sends the Holy Spirit into your heart, He fills you up with the love of God. And so the heart of prayer can be seen in the closing uh, words of our closing hymn. Come with unction and with power on our souls your gracious Your graces shower. Author of the new creation, make our hearts your habitation. This is what prayer is about. And we we rejoice in it. We are to be excited, moved to it, confident in it, because our Heavenly Father will give us all good gifts in and through and with the Spirit. Amen.